Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, great to be with you again on another episode of Informed Dissent. Uh, Mark is off on location, so he won't be with us, sitting on some beach in some foreign country, I imagine, sipping some tropical drink. Uh, actually, he's, uh, he's out of country, and when he comes back, he's going to have some exciting stories to share with us about his adventures, and especially his con- the contrast between the countries he's in and their fight for freedom and what's going on here in America. I've got a phenomenal guest, a good friend of mine, uh, who is an emergency room physician, uh, but more importantly, he is a brilliant researcher a phenomenal writer. As a matter of fact, he and I wrote a piece a long time ago, early in the pandemic, about hydroxychloroquine. He did most of the writing. I just kind of foiled around the edges of it. But nonetheless, he's got a news news, um, magazine or journal that he puts out, oh, every week or two weeks or so, depending on what's going on in the news. And it's called uh, Real Health Flash. And uh, welcome, Ed Greer, to uh, Informed Dissent. Great to be with you. Good to be with you as well. And it's just think of it as a gear shift, not a Greer shift. Gear shift. Got it. All right. Got it. So to start with, Ed, tell, tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you ended up on the, on the front lines, if you will, in this COVID fight with the rest of us. Sure. I'm happy to share that. Um, I uh, did my undergraduate and pre-med work at Yale, and then I went to Duke uh, for medical school. Uh, and in, despite all that, UCLA agreed to take me into a residency training program in emergency medicine. I also did a research fellowship there. And from there, I actually got a faculty appointment at the University of California up in San Francisco, where I uh, taught, did some research, and also ended up running the emergency department at San Francisco General Hospital, which was the Bay County ER and trauma center up there. Did that for a number of years. Uh, and then um, I gradually I evolved into more of the administrative side of medicine and then wound up in, in the medical industry, uh, particularly in uh, medical devices and pharmaceuticals. So I'm able to bring now uh, to bear both a research and academic perspective to this issue of COVID, as well as experience in an international pharma company where I actually held a senior position. It's been an honor to, to work with you and to read your Real Health Flash. It is one of the most concise, well-written uh, informationals about all the things that are going on in COVID, and you keep it very timely. What, where did you come up with the idea of writing this? Well, I started, uh, as you recall, you and I was kicking around and sending articles uh, and reviewing the literature very early on in 2020 when stuff just, uh, it just wasn't making sense to me, the prescriptions that I kept seeing that were coming out, the, the message kept changing, the, the advice was inconsistent. I sensed early on a strong pharma agenda behind a lot of this, and I just found it hard to follow the direction. I also started reading uh, some of the papers coming out of France, uh, Didier Raoul, and I speak French, so I was, I was picking this up in, in French, and uh, I was very impressed with the hydroxychloroquine work that he was doing. And that 
really spurred me on to uh, to writing something up, and you, uh, you ended up working with me on one of those papers. And that was just to share information with some friends and family who were understandably confused and were calling me about infections they had or what to do, should I take this or that. This was even long before the vaccines became available. And then as the vaccines came out and I looked at the data behind the, vac the vaccine studies, even the big studies, I just saw tremendous methodological weakness in these things. And it just seemed to me there was momentum and another agenda building behind this. And then when the lockdowns and so forth came through, I said, okay, this is a, there's a strong political dimension to this. This is no longer science. This is about the politics and power and control of population. And so I, I thought, okay, we and a few others are on our own to sort through the data and give good, good advice to our family and friends and patients. So before I forget, if somebody wants to sign up for your Real Health Flash newsletter, how would they do that? Well, the, um, I would rather, I would just soon handle it through you if anybody has an interest, if they could okay. forward in for a request to you for that. I keep it ver a very tight control on who gets access to it. And I'm okay, fair enough. And I, and I would encourage it. I've been reading it now for months that it comes out. And, and as soon as I, it's your, it's your wife, I think that actually mails it out. And as soon as I get it, I print it, I highlight it. Uh, I'm on the media a lot. I have an opportunity um, to, to speak to media and I, I use it as talking points because it's, it's, it's accessible. Most importantly, it's very sure. accessible. Um, so informed dissent media uh, you can email us and if you email us, we'll vet you and then we'll, we'll make sure that you're on the list to get that, uh, to get that newsletter. Cause it's, it's really a wonderful newsletter, not designed for physicians. It's really designed for the lay public and it's, uh, it's very accessible, easy to read and just filled with wonderful talking points and references that you can look at as to where uh, Ed gets the sources and the claims that he's making. Fair enough. If you wouldn't mind, let's talk, let's talk about the recent Real Health Flash that came out. And this was published on June 16th, just a handful of days ago. Um, I, was, I was on KUSI, that's a, a conservative TV station out of San Diego, just this morning. And I literally had this in front of me uh, as talking points. And it's, it's quite disturbing what you write, and so much of the public doesn't know. So for starting point, the, the FDA, of course, is the organization that authorizes drugs and vaccines. And then once they do so, the CDC then chimes in and makes recommendations as to who should receive that authorized, in this case, vaccine, if, if we even want to call it a vaccine, um, who should receive it. And the CDC recently said, you know, all the way down to six months six months old now can get the COVID-19 vaccine. And as a reminder, these vaccines aren't FDA approved. They're FDA approved under the emergency use authorization umbrella. And you point out, and I want you to expand on this, there is no COVID emergency in kids. So what the hell are they doing authorizing this? Whole emergency use authorization is predicated on an emergency existing. There is no emergency. And in particular, there is no emergency in, among children where a minimum of 75%, it's probably up to 80% now of kids in this country uh, have had the infection, so they have natural immunity. Now, some at the margins, uh, cancer patients and so forth, may have some compromised immune systems. And I'm not saying 
that kids who aren't high risk shouldn't get the vaccine. It's just that there's no evidence that it will work in them. But I'm not saying don't use it. I'm just saying there is no evidence of its efficacy in anyone. Uh, but I wouldn't dissuade uh, parents of very sick children not to get vaccinated. My point is that the bulk of kids are healthy and happy, have wonderful immune systems, and uh, and have had exposure uh, to this virus. Uh, the, the vast majority have. So there's no emergency from the standpoint of there is natural immunity among the kids in the in the United States. And you make reference to a study out of Johns Hopkins. Can you tell us a little bit about that, where they basically concluded uh, after looking at thousands and thousands of kids that had been recovered from COVID, that the mortality rate is in effect zero percent? Yeah, they actually looked at this was insurance information where they looked at 48,000 cases of COVID infection that were documented in the uh, in the insurance records. And not a single healthy child uh, had hospitalization or death from COVID. So it's clear, and that's, and that, by the way, the bias of that sort of a sample is toward sicker kids because otherwise they're not gonna go to an ER and so forth unless they're sick. So these are the sicker kids who are actually hitting the insurance system and it turned to 48,000 kids, no severe illness, no hospitalizations, no deaths. That's crazy. Where's the emergency? Well, exactly. That is the point, that there is no emergency among kids. And that's why you have to look at what's the agenda behind this. But I do think it's worth looking at, um, as we keep hearing from the FDA now and uh, Walensky at the CDC, this is safe and effective. And what I wrote uh, on the 16th was a really a, a, a dissection of that of that. Um, those false statements that are coming out of the United States government about the safety and effectiveness of these vaccines. There are two, by the way, there are, there are two to discuss. One is the Pfizer and one is the Moderna vaccine. Um, and But neither of them has evidence for safety or effectiveness. So let me understand this. You know, you, you make a comment about what possibly, if there's no emergency, there's really no evidence based on the studies of, of efficacy what do you think the underlying principle is? Why are they pushing forward with this? Because the you know people at the FDA they're not idiots, um, they're not stupid people, they're researchers. Um, why why do you think they're allowing this to occur when you and I both know that there is no emergency and there's limited evidence that these things even will work? Well, I I think you have to look at the uh, the consortium that is. Uh, the U.S. pharma government industry. Pharma, it, uh, far and away, funds FDA operations. And it recently came out that pharma also pays stipends, that is, it, it pays royalties to researchers at the NIH who are in the position, which is where Fauci is, which is authorizing and driving the authorization and, and funding the testing uh, for a lot of these, uh, these vaccines. So I, I think there are conflicts of interest. I mean, it is interesting. There was a, the two most senior people over vaccines last year resigned from the FDA in protest to this process. Another senior medical FDA officer, and I mentioned this in my article, 
said that no COVID emergency exists and that emergency authorization should not be granted. But this was ignored by his own agency. I suspect his tenure there will be limited. And so what you've got is you've got a cabal of people who are strongly incented for approval. And I'll tell you um, what's really startling is something that they've just come out with. It's going to be heard next week uh, in a, in a uh, panel discussion at the FDA. It's called the Future Framework. Have you heard about this, Jeff? No, tell, tell us about it. So the Future Framework is there's a proposal now from the pharma companies saying, you know what, we really don't need to do these pesky clinical trials. All we need to do is tinker with the mRNA um, sequence, the code in the mRNA that's affecting the spike protein that we inject into our subjects. And just like the flu vaccine, they just tinker with the ingredients going in. They don't oh, need to test it. <laughs> which, which is interesting because you're right. Every year we get a new variation on the theme of flu shots, right? That's right. And it's not, and it's not as if the FDA comes out every year and does another study. They just tweak it and offer it to the public. And, you know, interestingly, what they never do, they should do, but they never do, they don't take a matched control group of the flu, of flu shots, and say, okay, we're going to give a thousand people the flu shot and a matched control nothing, and then see how good it works. They don't do that. And every year, every single year, they tell us about this is going to be the worst flu season in the history of the world. And it turns out they get it wrong. And it turns out retrospectively, you look back and at best, it's about 30% effective. And I think we're going to see that now with COVID moving forward. There's no question. And in fact, even in this uh, pediatric trial that justified in the FDA's eyes approval for the vaccines down to six months, is they, did you know after six weeks, they blew up the control group? Basically, they, they, they vaccinated 70% of the control group, thereby all of your safe controls uh, eliminate your ability to, to determine safety of the vaccine. Let me make sure everybody understands what you just said. When they did these studies, there's a control group, meaning a group that's that's matched to age and sex and uh, and medical conditions and so forth that doesn't get the vaccine. Then there's a group that gets the vaccine. So they move forward about six or eight weeks. Then they unblind the study, meaning now the research knows who got the drug and who didn't get the drug. And the ones who were not vaccinated, they were all then offered the vaccine. And about 70% of or so of those got vaccinated, which means moving forward, we no longer have a control comparative group. So we won't even know long term to be able to compare the vaccinated versus, versus the unvaccinated to see about side effects and efficacy and all that. And they did that with the original vaccines, as you recall, back at the end of 2020 when they came out. They um, they terminated the control group there as well after three months so that that's insane. It was the same thing. So they did the same thing. If you blow up the control group, you have no way of assessing what the long term safety is. I was looking at the polio vaccine, by the way. Uh, I'm yeah. a recipient of the polio vaccine. You are and kids are. Uh, the fact is that before the polio vaccine came out in the 50s, they tested it on 1.8 million children and followed them for a couple of years before they distributed it across the country. 
that's 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 the old school. That's the way it used to be done. Right. And polio has the advantage. We should talk about this is that it was a sterilizing vaccine, meaning that the antibodies it generated uh, to combat any future infections of the polio virus uh, would end up killing the virus. That's never happened with the mRNA vaccines. They are non-sterilizing vaccines. They're non-sterilizing antibodies that are produced, meaning that when you get reinfected, and people are getting reinfected, as you know, with big time, uh, big time. In fact, my brother-in-law just called me. He got he get, he's reinfected today. In fact, after after I'm done, I'm going to be giving him some drugs. <laughs> I, I had a patient about an hour ago called me up. As a matter of fact, he's a physician, an MD, okay. anesthesiologist who's an who's a patient, and he's fully vaccinated and boosted, and now he's sick as a dog. Yes, and as I've been explaining, my fully vaccinated and boosted patients. Uh, you are the highest risk. After about three months, you actually swing to a negative vaccine efficacy, meaning you're more likely to get infected and be hospitalized. But let me go back to this point about the mRNA vaccines. Um, The fact that it's a non-sterilizing vaccine, meaning that it's producing antibodies that don't kill future versions of the coronavirus, it means that you can be reinfected it means also that you're all you're also you've created a uh, a laboratory, if you will, amongst millions of people who've been vaccinated, where the virus is constantly mutating, figuring out ways around the existing vaccine because the vaccine's not killing them. So the ones that survive are going, okay, how do I defeat this immune system? And now what you're seeing is the variant, these, there's Omicron variants now. We're off in the fourth and fifth generation Omicron variant since it first came out earlier this year and over the Christmas holidays. Uh, we're now in the fourth and fifth generation, which looks to be more infectious and potentially more dangerous. Uh, Why more dangerous? Yeah. So this is, this is the difference in ordinarily, as you know, viruses as they mutate, especially respiratory viruses, they get passed around. Uh, they mutate and they lose, they make it more infectious, meaning they spread more easily, but people don't get very sick from them. What we're seeing is the potential now that because of these non-sterilizing vaccines, it's allowing not only more infectious viruses to be generated, but potentially more dangerous viruses. And my prediction is that we will see this fall Omicron variants that probably are much greater severity than the original Omicron. And it's because of this issue of the non-sterilizing antibodies. But I certainly hope not. And, you know, you make mention in your real health flash that these studies that brought the vaccines forward for children, these studies were done prior to the onset of Omicron and their variants. And so this is a vaccine that was created for the old strain, not even for the new Omicron strain, which further makes us worried that they're not going to be efficacious even in the in the best of cases. Isn't that right? That's exactly right, which is why I believe that these had really no effect with the kids and in terms of, of uh, making any difference clinically for the kids. Uh, because as you point out, the original Wuhan, remember the work that was going on in the Wuhan lab was focused on making the S protein, that's that little spike in the corona or the crown of the virus, more infectious and could could evade the defenses of human immune systems. 
That's the one that, quote, leaked out of the lab. And that's the original, uh, the S protein, the RNA sequence that the Chinese provided for that was the one used to build the vaccines. So these are all synthetic RNA molecules that are based on that original Wuhan virus. As you point out now, we're now in, in multi-generations of Omicron and Moderna just announced they're, they're going, they're doing is they started a clinical trial saying, okay, we're gonna come out with an Omicron vaccine, but it's based on Omicron 1.0 and we're already at, at 5.0. So, the, so they're really they're just chasing chasing the virus. Exactly, and that will, however, watch that'll be used as the rationale for why we ought to be taking it because oh, it covers the Omicron. The Omicron 5.0 is farther away genetically from the original Omicron than Omicron was to the original Wuhan virus. Oh, interesting. So much has evolved. So I've always I've always talked about this, and and I think it's accurate, but you you help me. I use the analogy that physicians have rightfully been criticized in the past because we overprescribe antibiotics. You wake up with a sore throat, have a Z-Pack. You don't feel good today and you're coming down with a cold, have a Z-Pack, have, have amoxicillin, et cetera. We overprescribe when it's not really necessary. And the result is the development of resistant strains of bacteria because we do this. Most famously and probably most well-known, of course, is MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. Well, I think similar is the case with these viruses and spe specifically coronaviruses. We are over-prescribing, if you will. We are massively vaccinating with a non-sterilizing vaccination against COVID-19. And as a result of doing that, we're putting immunologic pressure on this virus to mutate. So this nonsense that we hear from Emperor Fauci that this is a pandemic of the vaccinated, of the pandemic of the unvaccinated, is actually the opposite. Be, we are forcing the emergence of these, um, of these different strains, of these variants, because we are massively vaccinating with an unsterilizing vaccination in the middle of a pandemic. Is that accurate? That's absolutely accurate. And this was predicted over a year ago by a, uh, a Belgian virologist named uh, Geert van der Busch. And Geert um, predicted exactly this, that these non-sterilizing vaccines were gonna generate all kinds of dangerous variants in the future. And um, everything he said so far is proving to be true. We heard early on too, uh, it was um, I think uh, uh, Robert Malone and, and others, Paul Alexander, who talk about this antibody dependent enhancement. Uh, and there was worried, worries about that. And you're describing the possibility that Omicron 5.0 could be not only more infectious, but potentially more lethal because of what it's doing to the immune system. Yeah, that's right. So this whole idea of uh, um, uh, about uh, antibody-dependent enhancement is the fact that if you have non-sterilizing antibodies, okay, they're not killing the virus. Actually, some of those antibodies can end up facilitating entry of the virus into the cells as opposed to signaling the immune system to come destroy it. So it actually, your body ends up aiding and abetting the enemy when you get into this ADE um, scenario. And that is one of the huge concerns is not only the, the viruses as they mutate, 
will become more infectious and more virulent, meaning more dangerous, but also that the people who are immunized may actually be fighting themselves in terms of aiding that virus entering their, their bodies. It's almost like that old expression, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. It's like if you don't kill the virus, you're making it stronger That's and you're weakening your immune system. You know, I'm reading, as I read an article just this morning about uh, a, a couple of cases, and I can't remember where, it might have been the UK, of polio that have now emerged. And I think what we're seeing is this vaccine is not neutral to the immune system. It's actually affecting people's immune system to fight off other diseases. And that's why we're seeing, for example, not uncommonly in vaccinated folks, an emergence of shingles, for example, that's an emergence of Bell's palsy. You know, we there's a video that came out recently of, uh, of Justin Bieber with Bell's palsy or Ramsey Hunt syndrome. And although he doesn't say so specifically, there's some snooping investigators that believe he was vaccinated. And the reason why they know that is because there is a big, huge Hollywood event where vaccination was mandatory in order to attend. And there were some, uh, you know, A-list celebrities that didn't go specifically because they weren't vaccinated. And here was Justin Bieber tweeting and taking selfies of himself at this party. So, the you know, the, this sleuthing researcher, you know, led, led that to make him believe, sure, of course he's vaccinated. And of course, this Ramsey Hunt syndrome is a result of him being vaccinated. It's a, it's a recurrence of basically the chickenpox virus that infects the, uh, the, the facial nerve. And that's what's happening. I'm seeing it in my practice. I'm seeing it with kids. I'm seeing it with, with adults. I'm not anti-vax by any means, but I think these vaccines need to be vetted uh, patients need informed consent, especially because it's an, ex in a, it's an experimental vaccine. And the American public just simply is not being told the truth. Yeah, I agree with that, Jeff. And I, I do think um, we, unfortunately, uh, another very, I didn't put this in the article, but I, I do believe we're going to see an increased incidence of SIDS in, in the babies. Just as we're seeing, oh, you've got all of these young people dropping over. There was just a, you know, a former a linebacker who was playing with Baltimore, 26-year-old guy, drafted in 2019, dropped dead. All right, um, all of these guys had to be vaccinated in the NFL, um, and uh, I suspect he was. And we're seeing across the world, at world-class athletes in the prime of life dropping dead. I, sadly, I think we're also going to start seeing that in children. We're going to start seeing a, a spike in incidence of SIDS, sudden infant deaths, because of these, these vaccines. I mean, I don't know about you. You know, most people are familiar with the term SID, sudden, sudden infant death syndrome. It's a horrible tragedy we quite, haven't quite figured out, putting a kid to sleep on their stomach versus their back and so forth. But now all of a sudden there's this SADS, sudden adult death syndrome. That's not actually a thing. No, I've never heard of it before, but <laughs> suddenly we're just talking about it like it's a normal thing. You know, it's like the um, Star Wars movie, you know, you know, move along. These aren't the drones you're looking for. Nothing to see here. That's how many in the medical industry are treating these things. It's crazy. No, I even saw a, t a tie to, uh, between SADS, sudden adult death syndrome and climate change saying because it's a lot warmer now, people are dropping dead in the prime of life. So they'll, they'll go to no end, uh, no lengths to uh, justify 
what is obvious to the rest of us that vaccines are getting in and they're affecting the, the hearts of young people, especially these prime athletes who maximally stress their bodies and they're falling over dead. It's insane. I've never seen anything like it. So, so what's, what's to make about now we've got the World Health Organization that, that's coming out and wanting to take control of the world pandemic response. And we're, we're already talking about funding the next pandemic. I mean, listen, I'm not much to believe in conspiracy theories, uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff early in the pandemic that I thought, no, you're, you're crazy. That's not actually a thing. And then all of a sudden it's a thing. I'll give you one example. Um, you know, the people that are vaccinated, is there something about them that they can transmit to unvaccinated people to make them unwell? And I thought, nah, come on, that's not actually a thing. But I've had multiple patients now, usually females, who menstrual cycles now get crazy, uh, postmenopausal women that start bleeding for the first time. And there is some sort of transmission that occurs. I had a, a trainer, a physical fitness trainer, female, and obviously you're very close to people when you're training them. And she just didn't feel good for the longest time. And she discovered several of her clients were recently vaccinated. So no longer was it, you're crazy, that can't actually be a thing, that it's actually a thing. And there's some really weird conspiracy theories about this from, I don't know if you listen, we, we actually... We actually had him on. His name is Brian Artis. He's a, he's a chiropractor. He's a brilliant researcher, and he really came up with some novel ideas, but he had this idea about snake venom, and that's pretty far out there. But, but we, we allowed him to talk and, and allowed him to air his perspective as, as, as crazy as that perspective, uh, crazy as that perspective uh, was. Any thoughts that you have of things that you thought were crazy, but now you're actually believing it to be the case? Well, originally, um, I was certainly giving the CDC and the FDA the benefit of the doubt. Uh, sadly, I mean, I, I'm, I am, I remain pro-vax for tested, uh, uh, fully tested and validated vaccine products. And any, any of those that are to treat viruses, they must be uh, virucidal. That is, they must be sterilized, generate sterilizing antibodies. Um, yeah. For the first time, uh, I never thought I would see this, that the, the, um, the alignment of the big pharma companies, Pfizer in particular, and the United States government, and all the money they spread around in Congress, which is considerable, they are the biggest donors, uh, as a group, as a trade organization to, uh, to politicians. Um, I'm, I'm finally seeing that I think we've really lost confidence and control over the safety of the products that are, that are coming out now. And I, I never thought we would see that. I, I thought, okay, you could slip up here or there, but I'm now seeing uh, uh, so much of this so consistently that it's of enormous concern uh, for our future, that we can no longer count on these agencies to protect the public. Yeah, absolutely. And Ed, when are we going to see your next um, Real Health Flash come out? When do you expect to release it? Well, I'm working on one right now, and I, I alluded to this before, and that is uh, what I'm predicting might happen in the, uh, in the coming months with these variants. Um, what I'm very concerned about, it's happening right now in Portugal, uh, Chile uh, and um, 
And we're starting to see the emergence of these uh, fourth and fifth generation Omicron variants in the U.S. It's about 20% right now. Um, I do think this could be a, we could cross a threshold here where all of a sudden the vaccine turns against us. Tell us a little bit about what you know about the uh, Pfizer drug for COVID, Paxlovid. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so Paxlovid, interestingly, um, they just withdrew their request for approval for people who are not at high risk. Uh, So what you had were people who were not at high risk taking getting testing positive, taking Paxlovid, getting better over the next two or three days, and then all of a sudden the, the, the virus comes back with a vengeance, and all of a sudden they're sicker than they were before they took the drug. So now it's being reserved only for those who are, quote, at high risk, and still causing recurrence of symptoms, and then you're getting this rebound phenomenon of Paxlovid. It's also, as you know, it has a a tremendous number of drugs that it has uh, bad interactions with. And so you gotta be very careful about who gets it. Bottom line is they developed this to replace things like the repurposed drugs of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Uh, They get five to 600 bucks a course of of treatment of Paxlovid, this oral tablet, or it's actually a capsule. Uh, And it's causing rebound infections. It doesn't sound like a good deal to me. No, I don't actually use it. I mean, if somebody, if a patient insists on it, um, I, I think I may have prescribed it one or two times, but I don't think it's a good drug. Um, it's not particularly effective. I'm worried about the rebound effect. And I had a personal friend who I'm now helping, personal friend who had a transplant, a lung transplant, and he went into an urgent care center because he had COVID. And the doctor prescribed Paxlovid. And unfortunately, it interacted with one of the medications that he's on for the anti-rejection. And the doctor didn't check or didn't know, or the pharmacist didn't check or didn't know. And he's in very serious shape right now. Uh, his, his kidneys are hurting. Um, his, his lungs are, are having difficulty. Um, he's now back on steroids. And, and he's really struggling because of this drug and the interaction. And listen, that, that may be an extreme case of not, not many people have transplants that need to be on Paxlovid, but it interacts, it interacts with statins, for example, and everybody and their mother is on a statin. Yes. It, intera- it interacts with blood thinners, uh, and many people are on blood thinners, and it's just not an effective drug. And part of the reason why patients are wanting this is because they aren't getting access to routine early treatment with a sequence multi-drug treatment protocol that we know works. I mean, even today, I tried to call in ivermectin for a patient. I thought, you know, so much time has gone by that certainly the CVSs and Rite Aids are now allowing it to be dispensed again. Nope, not happening. I still have to go through compounding pharmacies or mom and pop pharmacies to get it. And that's the problem. Early treatment is still being suppressed. Pfizer and company are pushing expensive, non-effective, and potentially dangerous drugs, and, and, and we move on. And people like you and I and others continue to fight and battle in the media to get our voice heard, to get the truth out there, and ultimately to try to help um, protect and to treat patients that are coming in contact with COVID. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's sad that uh, the default position is to use a drug that we know doesn't work and potentially does harm. Yep, absolutely. Well, listen, 
Dr. Gear, it's been an honor talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Informed Dissent. Uh, we must have you back in a few weeks, maybe after your next uh, news flash comes out. Uh, you're a brilliant researcher, a great writer, and, and a very clear thinker. So I just want to thank you for coming on and, uh, and sharing your perspective with our listeners. Happy to be with you, Jeff. Good to see you again. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, informed dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.